Hello, welcome to the Eyes Up Life podcast with your host, me, Ben Granis. Today is a very special day. We have the first ever episode of the Eyes Up Life podcast. And as I mentioned in the preview episode, this is the full audio from one of the 21 interviews I conducted with Maxis Athletes and Affiliates this fall. Today, I am pleased to kick things off with the greatest, winningest motocross and supercross racer of all time, Jeremy McGrath. I won't do much of an introduction for Jeremy because that's what the interview is for. I hope you enjoy today's episode and make sure to tune in to the end of the episode to hear who will be on next week. So uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time, Jeremy, um, today. If we'll just start by having you introduce yourself, say where you're from. To you or to the camera? Yeah, just, just talking to me. That'd be great. Um, yeah, it's good to be here. Obviously, uh, my name is Jeremy McGrath. I'm a seven-time Supercross champion. Uh, 2018 short course Lucas champion and Maxis ambassador. And where are you from, Jeremy? I am from Encinitas, California. Sweet. So you're, I, I mean, I feel bad almost not really having the full appreciation for being able to, like, being able to talk to you right now because I'm not in the, the before I started this trip, I was not really at all aware of the power sports world. Um, so it's really cool and an honor to be talking to you. Um, I think I imagine a lot of people who are going to be watching this won't really know as much about the sport as you do. So if you could just talk about, you know, like the scale of your accomplishments in your career. <clears throat> yeah. Um, to be honest, it's kind of refreshing, you know, to talk to someone that doesn't know anything about what I do, you know, uh, it, in certain cases, I'm the same, right? I talk to other people that I don't know anything about what they do. So, uh, in my situation, this is what I've be, you know been doing since I was a little kid. Um, started racing when I was 14, dirt bikes, uh, which is kind of late, you know, for guys, at least the guys that I race with and competed against. I was a BMX kid, so like I raced BMX on track all over Southern California, and then kind of all over the country from the ages of like nine to about 14. And then uh, a friend of mine that raced BMX started racing motocross and he's like, man, you should come check it out. So any little kid that races BMX, you have to pedal. And then when you get on a dirt bike, you have a throttle. So you're like, wow, okay, this is cool. So uh, that's kind of where it started. My my dad and mom were hobbyists, I'd say, when I was a little kid. We, I, was great. I was born in San Francisco and we used to go to this place called Hollister Hills, which is out of town a little ways and it was like a riding motocross riding you know trail park and uh, I'd go there as a little little kid and I think it just stuck with me you know and then when I finally got on a dirt bike it it kind of all happened so fast I was st started racing at 14 by the time I was like almost 17 I was pro and sort of this hobby thing turned into a dream and turned into reality and then you know, turned into an amazing career that I never imagined I'd ever have. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, 
to win a race, to be, to be, my goal was to, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I loved jumping. So my goal was to just somehow get into a stadium to be able to race Supercross, right? And for those of you who don't know what Supercross is, Supercross is a motocross race within a, let's just say, Anaheim Stadium where the baseball players play. And they bring in all this dirt and they build a track with all these jumps. And uh, it's really, really cool. And I went and visited, you know, went to check out some of those races when I was a little kid, 10 years old. And it just was stuck with me. And so my goal was to just get into a supercross so I could ride on those tracks, you know, do those jumps and ride under the lights. And and uh, once I started doing that, it just sort of took off on, on me. And uh, within a few years, I'd won a race. And then I'd won several races. And then I got on factory, you know, Honda at the time and uh, won some championships. And it just kind of snowballed from there and here we sit I'm you know what 23 so I'm 10 years retired right so um yeah sitting here still with the most supercross wins in history of the sport and how many wins is that uh, I have seven championships I raced the premier class for 10 years I won seven titles I got two seconds and a third and then I retired uh, I, f I finished with 72, 72 main event wins. Wow. <laughs> I, that's, that's nuts. And what you said you're still well ahead of the, the next. The next closest guy is a guy that's since retired. Uh, his name's James Stewart, legend in the sport. And uh, he has 50. So I have 22 more than him. What would you say is something that contributed to your success at such a big scale? You know, I don't know. I think uh, obviously the timing of me coming in was that I had the great window. Um, of course, the field was stacked, but I think my BMX background with the jumping and having to be smooth and all this stuff, really, when I came in, it kind of changed the changed the riding in the sport. It just changed the style. Uh, and, and my my new style, BMX sort of type, style that I adapted to Supercross um, was just staying low on jumps, riding really fast through the faces of jumps and uh, saving a bunch of time and not getting giant air uh, made a huge difference. And it took, it took people a long time to figure that out. So um, just changing the guard, you know, change, change the style of the sport. And, and I think, you know, I added a, you know, level of fun to it, having a lot of fun while I was out there and, I uh, was able to race for a long time. A lot of guys aren't, weren't able to race as long as I I was. I mean, I stayed really healthy, which is pretty lucky. So uh, motocross and supercross can be pretty dangerous. But relatively, I stayed relatively healthy and, and uh, was able to get a lot of wins. What were some of the larger setbacks that you had as you were going through your career? Uh, I think larger. one of the larger ones when I was a kid, just getting into the supercross, like in my first few years, I broke my leg once. I uh, was able to compete in a race with a sort of like an air cast and a bigger boot. And I had to race with, and get in the top 10 to, to secure the championship in 1991, I think it was. And uh, yeah, it was wild. I raced with a broken leg pretty much. but finished ninth and, and won, was able to win the series. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I broke, broke my wrist one time. Uh, I had to get a screw in my wrist, so that set me back for a couple months. But it was after the Supercross season, so I got lucky. I won the title with a broken wrist, pretty much, 
And then I went in for surgery after that. So I raced about th the last three races with a, with a broken wrist. And then I went into surgery, so I was off for a couple of months. So the timing of some of this stuff was really, really lucky. But um, those were two pretty major setbacks. Um, after I retired, I hurt myself a few times, but probably just because I wasn't paying attention, you know, as much as I needed to be. I wasn't focused. I was just out having fun and ended up fracturing my neck one time, dislocated my hip one time, uh, maybe twice. And, yeah, just kind of these weird, weird little circumstances. But thankfully it was after I was done racing, really, seriously. What's your life looked like on the whole since retiring? Like, have you, are you still? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I think... You know, as a being an athlete in sport, I think you know. I think my my I always had this goal of retiring, obviously healthy, but also retiring before I hated the sport. You know, a lot of athletes, I think, at the end, just have a chip on their shoulder, and they just don't like the sport anymore. Whether it's the 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 pull on them to be in certain places, it's the travel, it's not getting paid enough, it's the fans bugging you, you know. What, whatever someone might think it might be, you know, and living in the spotlight's kind of tough sometimes. And thank God I, I did it all through the era of not having social media, uh, you know, so you're able to grow up, make mistakes, and learn from that. Now it's uh, everyone's under the microscope. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, being able to grow up in that kind of my biggest thing was to be able to leave the sport in a good way and still love my motorcycle, which is the tool that provided me a life of you know I, I people call it a job but I, I mean I was a sporting athlete for a living that's not a job I mean I don't it's tough to consider that a job anyway I was having a lot of fun um, but yeah since then I still love the sport uh, become a host on some shows uh, just an ambassador for a lot of partners that I've had throughout the industry throughout the years and uh, just created some great relationships um, developed a lot of products, helped companies develop a lot of products, been the face of a lot of companies, such as Maxxis. And uh, since racing dirt bikes, I went in and raced off-road short course trucks and was able to win a lot and win a championship for Maxxis. And then since then, we've developed some new motocross tires for Supercross and motocross that are out there that the kids are riding now. And so uh, just been able to be lucky enough to be part of a lot of cool things. And and still doing it, working for Maxis, working for Kawasaki, traveling to events, hosting TV shows, doing autograph signings, and uh, just able to be me. So it's a pretty good life. So if you can think back, I, I, you touched on social media. We'll put a pin in that. But if you can go back to your young self when you were just getting into the sport, what did you? What were you feeling that told you that you wanted to? That this is what you wanted to pursue and, and do for a while? <clears throat> well, honestly, when I got into it, I think you know. A sport like this, I'm not sure you get into the sport and go like, yeah, this is, the, at least in that era, I don't think you got into the sport and go, yeah, I'm going to be a professional motocross racer or a supercross racer. That's what I want to do. Uh, you know, six months before I was a professional dirt bike racer, I was bagging groceries at Vons just out of high school. I mean, I, I honestly thought I was going to college. The dirt bike thing was, it was a hobby. And like I started at 14, which was really late. So the learning curve was super steep, you know, to be starting at 14 and, and pro at 16 or 17 is pretty short span. So, um, even at that point, I still didn't, 
you know, I mean, at that point, it really, you didn't know if that could be a job, you know, something that you could make money at, something that you could survive at. Um, the generation before me, like the one guy that won everything, he was the guy that one or two guys were the only guys that were able to sort of not have to work after the fact, right? After their sport was over. Um, and I was lucky enough, you know, I mean, those were those guys were the guys I looked at, looked up to, right? So I imagine that I'm going to be working. I'm going to go to college and all this stuff. Like, uh, but then it started to snowball. I started winning. I started getting paid. I started getting these deals. I started really doing well, and uh, it turned into a life that I never imagined. So, looking back, I didn't. I just didn't think it was going to be a job. I didn't think I was going to make money at it. I, I just didn't know. But I knew I loved it, and I knew I was good at it. So I think that uh, it's proof that your passion can win out, right? So if you have enough passion and you're good enough at something, if you go after your dreams, I think you can get it. Uh, I'm proof of that. And uh, I'm sitting here today just still just pinch myself when I look at where I live and I look at the career that I've had and uh, something I never imagined. Is there anything that you would do differently or advice you'd give to your younger self? I think the advice I always give to my kids, you know, I have two daughters and I'm trying to raise them, but the the advice I, you know, I give is, you know, I had a lot of talent as a, as a sports kid, you know, I was like really good, but I think being really good is a little bit of a disadvantage because you kind of rely on your talent and you don't recognize early enough that the dedication and the, and the workload that you put with the talent can be just unstoppable. And it took me a long time to figure that out. I relied on my talents for about the first four, three or four or five years and didn't work hard enough. I thought I was working, but didn't really work hard enough. And I think that if I could pass any message to my younger self would be like to recognize what you have a little bit earlier. And I realized I was a kid in a grown up world, but, and you think you have everything under control as a kid. But looking back, I just would have wish I would have listened to my dad a little bit earlier and and maybe put a little more work in. Eventually, I got it, so I understand that now. And when I worked hard and I and I had the ta- natural talent that I was born with, it was unstoppable. I mean, I won so many races, so much. You know, I just kicked everyone's ass, which was great. But I wish I would have recognized it a little bit earlier. And my daughters are the same with the sport. You know, they're pretty. One of them's really good and loves to work, and one's really good but doesn't love to work. So you have to. I'm trying to instill that part where you, the workload makes a difference, and uh, that's probably what I'd tell myself, my young self. Once you started getting all these victories under your belt, how did you stay focused on the work and continue to improve? I think, you know, look, my dad was a mechanic by trade for for his whole life. He had to bust his knuckles every single day for 35000 a year. And he provided a great family life for me and my sister and my mom. And it's pretty amazing. He was a conservative guy, just head down, do a lot of work, and it'll happen. And that's what he did. And I think for me... As I started winning, it could have been really easy, easy, easy to get out of control, you know, big head and sort of forget your values. And for me, I just, I tried to just always think of myself as the underdog, 
you know i mean even though i was winning every a lot of races and i was just like it could be over tomorrow you're only as good as your your last race it could be over tomorrow so someone's here to beat you and i just always thought of myself as the underdog and it really it just really kept me grounded for a long long time and i was able to get through a long career without without getting off the rails you know too much it um there's a couple instances throughout my career that I was a little too cocky, a little too maybe arrogant. You know, there's just a fine line between arrogance and confidence, I think. And, you know, life has a way of smacking you down when you get too arrogant. And it happened to me. I would think I was too good and crash or whatever and hurt myself. So um, it was a great way to recognize, like, hey, you're getting too, too big for your britches, you know. So um, luckily I was able to keep it in check and uh, – race for a long time without without life having a way of smacking me down so um i think just trying to think of yourself as the underdog at least it worked for me it just it it really keeps you grounded so you mentioned earlier this is taking the pin out of the social media piece you for most of your career or maybe all of your career were it was before social media was a big piece um can you can you talk i guess a little bit about what your how like your how you got exposure then before social media or what that sort of world was like now that you have social media and that sort of contrast well i mean it's weird but we we did it the old school way right you back in our sport we had magazines and we had different little tv shows that you could do interviews on uh in fact when i started winning we started getting a little bit of espn sort of you know um, recognition maybe ESPN was paying attention to our sport a little bit and showing little clips here and there which was really good for me because at that time I was winning uh, just tried to do every little thing I could do outside of the racing part you know uh, if you just stuck to the racing part there wasn't much going on uh, I had a publicist back then which is kind of another way to old school way of doing it right and she really worked hard to get me on different TV shows. I was on Jay Leno twice uh, with the Supercross track, with my dirt bike up on stage talking to Jay. Uh, it was pretty cool. And that's that was kind of unheard of for our sport. So uh, I worked hard at promoting the sport, but also promoting my own self, which is my own brand, um, which allowed me to, you know, create created more opportunity, created more, you know, brand. So you could go out and sell yourself a little bit better. So in, in the early 90s, it was really tough. <clears throat> but in the middle of the 90s, it started to kind of happen. And we were getting these TV shows and these different things. And, uh, yeah, it was, we were shooting our own, like, practice, our own videos. So we were coming out with DVDs back then that were just, like, riding stuff away from the racetracks. Not racing, but and just lifestyle stuff. And that created a lot of, uh, you know, hype, I guess you'd say. So... Weird. I was doing everything I could. I just wanted to be different, you know. I just wanted to do everything different than anyone else, and I did. We had I had my own video game. I had two video games: Supercross '98 and then Supercross 2000, which is Jeremy McGrath Supercross '98 um, for Acclaim videos, Acclaim Sports. And uh, yeah, just I think through the winning, just a lot of opportunities happen, you know. But I tried to capitalize on all of it. Right. Um, so now, you, I mean, you have a, a very strong social media presence now. So talk to me about what your relationship has been with social media since you got it and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, social media is a, you know, I'm kind of like right on the verge of the being 
old enough to not really want to deal with it. But, you know, social media is a necessary evil. Unfortunately, it is. This time, this time in this era, you know, this is how you get people, you know, whether it's outlandish stuff or whether it's racing stuff or whether it's your personal stuff, whatever it is, this is how people spread their message. And, um, you know, I enjoy it. It's uh, Instagram, for, for instance, like Facebook. I wasn't really into Facebook much. Instagram is kind of where I started my thing. And then um, obviously you can connect that to Facebook throughout the, you know, throughout the, the travels. But, um, you know, I've done most of it myself. I've had some friends come on and help me with some of the stuff I do with Instagram and all that when, um, when I get super tired of it. But I, I just keep it pretty mellow. I don't. I don't overpost, you know, I follow a lot of athletes and I try not to make it, I still want to mix in some personal stuff. I want it to feel like it's me. I don't want it to be commercial and I know a lot of it is out there these days and that stuff's pretty tiring. So, uh, I don't know, I used to really like Instagram a lot, but recently it's changed where you don't see anyone that you actually follow anymore. So, it's kind of disheartening, you know. The family and the personal fun part of it has kind of left Instagram, at least, for now. So, um, I don't know. Just try to film some cool stuff, put it on there. But I, I don't mind it. But I don't feel attached. I don't feel like I'm trapped and have to be on it. So, How do you maintain a balance with it? Like, I mean, do you ever feel like you've been, like you're getting swept up in it and you have to take yourself away. out of it? Yeah, or not really. I try to maintain a balance. Uh the way I look at it is I just try to, if there's something worthy of filming or making a video of or something, then I do it. Um, other than that, I, you know, try to take care of fun stuff when it's coming, when it comes to personal relationships like, you know, Kawasaki, for instance, or Monster or Maxis, you know, my three really heavy hitters that I have. Um, just try to fulfill the obligations, but do it with fun, you know, and do it creatively. Um, we're racing side-by-sides now with my daughters. And so having like fun Max's tire content is pretty easy these days because we're at, we're either at the shop working on the cars or we're out driving them or we're doing something with the family and it's just really easy content. So, um, yeah, I just, I just try to keep it within the parameters and not, not be a prisoner of it, you know? So, yeah, it's interesting. So you have two high school age daughters what's their like what's been your experience as a parent with them having cell phones social media and all of that yeah my my experience with them as a parent has been uh you know they they're my older one's 17 year old or 16 year old she's a little too caught much attached to it i think you know like the kids these days i don't they don't they don't know any different but it's my job to probably try to keep it limited a little bit. Um, we try to, but it's difficult with teenagers. <laughs> it's difficult. So we're struggling just like any other parent out there with the phone thing. And, uh, you know, I think being out in public, being a racer and being in sports and talking to the parents and doing things, you know, just making the kids be out there uh, is an important thing for me because that's how I had to do it. You know, I was not afraid to talk to people and, I don't want my kids to just grow up like this. You know what I mean? So we got to watch it. Yeah. Do you feel like you've like been pretty successful at like helping them appreciate being away from their phones and how? Well, I think, I think, 
I think as I remember being a kid, right, your parents used to tell you things over and over and over and over, and they, they, they just thought you were never listening. And I think that same thing rings true with us as parents. We're, we keep telling our kids over and over and over and over like they're not listening, but I think somewhere in there they must be listening. And that'll come out later, and that, that's the same things I recognize. When I was like 18, you think that's just parent noise, right, that's coming to you. But when you're about 25, you're like, hmm, I think my dad was right. You know, or you recognize that your parents were right on some of this stuff. So, you know, there's challenges to go with it. Um, we don't, our kids are pretty good. They've been pretty good. So I think we're pretty lucky in that part. But, you know, sometimes it's frustrating. That's what's for, what's frustrating? Sure. Just the whole. The distraction. Yeah. I think the frustration part with the kids is the distraction with the phone, you know, uh, but they, they, they do a lot of homework with their computers and their phones and stuff these days, you know, and that's a lot of them, how they communicate with that TikTok and all that stuff. And you're just like, you know, again, that for, for us, it's like, we're old school, right? So we don't totally understand it. So we try to walk, Try to find the balance, you know. Do you have any like hard lines, like no phones at the dinner table, yeah. or like do you have special like certain times of day where you're like? We we definitely have no phones at the dinner table, and we've actually considered the whole basket thing. When you walk in, you put your phone in the basket, and you're not allowed to touch it anymore. So we, when times get real frustrating, we toy with that idea. I uh, haven't implemented it yet, but thinking about it it's in the back pocket it's in, in the case. back pocket it's a threat right we might follow through on so we'll see <laughs> what seems like the biggest distraction for for your kids is it instagram tiktok or yeah it's it's they'll sit for hours and look at it uh, and just look at random nonsense nothing so it's so, just a waste of time right yeah uh, <laughs> it's a time eater and right. and you're not learning anything it's just a you know i think you know you think about you think about China, right? China has this same, they're the ones that created TikTok, that there's a problem. But you think on their TikTok comes all the funny videos and stuff? No. On theirs is probably educational videos and different things. They're not letting their kids sit around and turn into dummy mush heads by looking at funny videos. I think that's something that we all have to consider, you know? It's uh, looking at the phone for the most part is... 10% work or homework or 10% needed, 90% not needed. So you just have to just figure out how to balance that, I guess. Right. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I was My dad literally just sent to my family yesterday a piece on 60 Minutes the other day, and they were talking just about TikTok and how China created it, and yet they, they filter what people, I forget what the age is, like 15 and under, can only see like videos that are helpful, not the... Yeah. garbage that yeah, everyone's yeah. exposed to not here though no yeah, but that's they, by design right they're trying to ruin our next generation and they make more money because of it exactly but i think they're also trying to dumb down our population right which and is it's, and it's working it's a huge bummer <laughs> it's a huge um, bummer you think that someone couldn't be that maybe manipulative manipulative maybe or evil but it's out there yeah yeah, so. it's uh, it's it's an interesting thing to. I mean, you can ignore through. it or not, but it's happening. 
Right, and you can only ignore it to a certain extent, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, your is your oldest daughter driving yet? She is. Yeah, her name's Rowan. She's driving. She's had her year uh, license for one year. She's about to turn seventeen. Yeah. So that's the you're the first person that I've interviewed with a driving age child. I think so. What's what's your experience with distractions in the car personally, and then how do you approach that with Rowan? Yeah, well, it's uh, for one, she's grown up racing, right? So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. She has car control experience. I was relieved that when she got her license, she had that experience behind her. Uh, but yes, we are pretty hard on the distraction with the phones in the car. Um, it's a risky business. I'm a biker, and I'm a guy that spends time out on the roads, and there's been close calls with a lot of my friends and even friends that have been hit. So I know how distraction can hurt people, and so we're pretty big on that. Um, does she listen? I would hope so that she listens when I'm not around, but um, we, we're pretty big on it. And how, when you say you're big on it and you, you work hard on it, what, is that, what does that actually look like? like how are you, how are well, you... we talk about it. I mean, we talk about it, right? So we talk about uh, phones and the distraction and the accidents that her friends are getting hit. They're all riding e-bikes around here. Uh, you know, before she got her license, all of them were on e-bikes riding everywhere. And some of the kids have been hit. The boys have been hit. Um, the kids are just as distracted on the bicycles too, though. So you got to, it goes both ways. The car is dangerous, of course, because it's a big, heavy piece of machinery. But the bikers pull out in front of the cars because they're not paying attention and all this stuff. So the etiquette and education that the kids have is really lacking too when it comes to biking or any kind of street knowledge right street like driving etiquette a lot of them are out there and doing all the things that on their bicycles that drivers do but they don't know they don't know the rules so it becomes pretty dangerous for the cars and the bikers um so i think the more we talk about it the more etiquette that I can teach them to build into their driving and their stuff, you know, uh, it can help. It, it helps. It has to help. But we talk about the injuries that kids get. We talk about the dumb people that are on the phones that almost hit other people. We see it. We see it in front of us. We see people swerving all over 80, 50, you know, they go 80, then 50, then, you know, so you see it all over the place. It's easy to see now, uh, a lot different than it used to be. Um, so we, we, we discuss it quite a lot and, we make it known that, you know, you're not, not supposed to be using your phone in the car. What, um, what do you think would be something that would help us as a society to, um, to, I totally agree with you that talking about it more and just increased education would be super helpful. What do you think is going to be a factor that kind of turns the tide towards fewer distracted drivers? You know, I, I don't know. I think that, uh, I really think honestly, when you hop in the car, your phone should not text. Like that would be a good rule. If your phone just did not text while you were in the car and somehow your phone knew you were in the car. And once your phone knows you're going past 10 miles an hour or whatever, you can't text on it. And I don't know how they can do that, but they can do a lot of things and I'm sure they can figure it out. Um, but I think increased education increased videos examples of what happens examples of sh and starting at young and and it sh should be in school probably um 
Lord knows they have all kinds of other wild stuff in school these days. They could get some serious with some education on this because this is, um, you know, it's killing kids and drivers are getting in trouble for it. So, um, I think, you know, it's, it starts young. We're all pretty learning. All this stuff's new, right? I mean, e-biking's new. Phones are all new to the little kids. Years ago, you didn't get a phone until you like 15 or 16. You didn't really want one, right? You're out riding your bike, out doing stuff. Uh, but now kids are having them really young, so they might as well start teaching them really young. So you mentioned the phone piece. Um, are, do you know about the driving focus feature on your phone? Yeah. Do you use it? I use it. Yeah. Yeah. Do your, do your it's daughters? It's the same feature that you use at night when you go to sleep. You can put your phone on sleep. Right, but your yeah. phone can know if you're driving and then you don't get notifications. Oh, yeah. You know what? I, did, I forgot. I didn't even know that. Do you want to learn so then you can teach your daughters? Yeah, absolutely. Right, so to, you have your phone right there? I need to learn it, yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, if you go into settings. Whoop. <laughs> um, Is that some social media there, Jeremy? <laughs> no, no. It just, yeah, clipped on. That's awesome. Uh, let's see. So you can go to this thing right here, focus. Right. So, but you can have it turn on automatically when you're in your car. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you go oh. go into your settings app. Settings. All right. And then there's a focus thing. Oh yeah, focus. Okay. And then I don't know. Driving might be there. Probably not. But if it just hit the plus in the upper right. Uh, driving's not there. And then there'll plus. be. And then there should be a drive. Oh yeah, it says driving. Oh wow. When you're on the road, stay focused on silent. Customize focus. So what does that mean? So hit the customize button? Uh, you, you, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not sure what this guy's already have it, so I'm not sure what it looks like. But you can... Customize um, screens. Choose a lock screen to turn on to help distractions. So turn on automatically while driving. So this is driving focus, so... Choose? No. Um, that's pretty cool. So you can have it turn on automatically, or you can have it when it connects to Bluetooth. Or CarPlay. Or CarPlay. Um, Activate yeah. with CarPlay. And you, uh, I don't know if it showed up with the option, but you can also have your phone automatically reply to your contacts, uh, a text saying that you're driving so that they know not to expect a message until you're done driving. Oh, okay, all the others be silenced. Oh, that's pretty cool. It's been, it's been a really, I just started using it before I started my bike ride. Um, and since then it's, it sparked a lot of conversations with people because they're like, oh yeah, I saw your text, that's really cool. I had no idea you can do that. You know, I, I think the phone manufacturers could do a much better job of making Well, until it you just told me that, I didn't know you could do it either. Right. Yeah, it's, it's super helpful because then you don't have to think about it. Yeah. You know? No, you hop in the car and it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're not getting texts or nothing. Right. Yeah. So it's, that's, it's one small step and, um, you know, what, that's, that's... Yeah, makes it... It's a big project. Makes a big difference, I'm yeah. sure. Um, yeah, so it'd be cool to share cool. that with uh, with Rowan. And yeah, I'll, I'll share it with my daughters, Rowan and Bergen. Yeah. Um, so while your phone's out, I know you, you're you're in the pool of people who have a, a, a special awareness for your phone usage. But uh, do you ever look at or discuss with your family screen time? Oh yeah. You do. 
Yeah. So you, are you that's like a major problem with our, <laughs> with our kids? Yeah. So like, what's what are some things that come up when you talk about it? Uh, well, I mean, just too much screen time is the problem, right? And they we have it set on they have a set parameters for screen time. So they they you guys use the feature that like yep allows them a certain amount of time, and then if they want more, they have to ask us for certain apps. Right. And what are the apps that you guys limit? Well, TikTok and Instagram and all the social media ones. What's like the rough window that you guys limit it to? It's like an hour a day or? Yeah, it's like an hour. We have give them like an hour, I think it is. Hour, hour and 20 minutes or something. Is that on each app or? No, hour total. Okay. Hour total. Yep. And is it, has, how is that? Has it worked? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, sometimes they have to, Sometimes they feel like they need more so they can get, do something because the phone basically won't work. So they want to get on with their friends to do homework. You know what I mean? So we have to figure out some compromise with that. But for the social media app, it's working a little bit. Yeah. There's a, there's a study that came out, I think it was last year, um, that says that the average American, based on current social media use, will spend about five years of their life on social media over the course of their life. Um, Holy moly. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. That's um, a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of wasted time. Five years. It's a lot. And I, I was blown away when I saw that. And then they break it, break it down into like how much hours and yeah, days it, and all this stuff. But it's really, it's only like 90 minutes, maybe an hour 45 on social media total per day. Really? And that equals, that's going to equal about five years by the time you're dead. Yeah. So it's, it's less than yeah. you think. So if you spend, you know, two hours watching YouTube videos a day, like there, yeah. that adds up. And, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it gets back to your point earlier that it's a necessary evil. You know, some of, there is good about it. There but, is, there's plenty of bad too, but you know, you can look at that statistic also for watching TV. I mean, I guarantee that statistic goes way up when you talk about TV time, you know what I mean? Cause everyone's pastime is to watch TV, especially with the family when you're all together at night, whatever. So Yeah. I think the phone's probably worse though, because it's your eye. I think it messed your eyes up. I don't know. It's a more like direct connection, but yeah, you're right. TV. Well, and mostly that thing about like this, you know, where you're like looking at your phone just like this, and this only and everything else is channeled out. You know, I don't, I don't like that. We don't like that at all. That's what we don't like about our kids. We don't want our kids doing that because we don't, we just don't want them to. You know, kids are too accustomed now to look at their phone and just not look at anything else. Right. You miss, it's not only dangerous, but you're missing what's around you. You're missing life itself. That's not life. Looking at a phone is not life. Right. So. You mentioned some personal connections to distracted driving. I'm wondering what, like, what, what's, what's the extent of your connections? Uh, you know, I mean... When you have kids and you, you have a, this small community around here, uh, you know, you just really hear about, you know, kids getting hit, getting, kids getting clipped, you know, uh, and some, some, I mean, around here, you, in your own town, you hear about this stuff locally, right? I mean, some people around here, we live in a big biking community, so people get hit all the time, so... Some I know, some I don't know, but a lot of the kids have been 
you know, it goes around when the kids get clipped or something happens with them. So we hear about it a lot. That's about as far as it goes for me. I don't have anyone that got killed or anything that I know. Anyone that I know. Oh, you know what? I take that back. One of my friends that was a MotoGP champion in 2006, he, uh, he got killed. He was in Italy training, doing some riding, road biking, and uh, got killed. So I do know someone that got killed. What, how does being a, a cyclist and your racing experience influence your relationship to driving and distractions in the car? I mean, naturally, I'm, I'm guilty of probably thinking that I have under, everything under control, just like everybody, everyone else thinks they do. So, uh, you know, I try to be as, as concentrated as possible. Sometimes it's hard. You never know. Do you feel like it changed when you had kids? Yeah, I feel like it changed. I feel like it changed when the... You know, there was a time when texting wasn't that important. You know, it was just phone calls. I feel like it changed as the level of, you know, instant response got more critical. You know, people just, it's like we live in this life of like now, 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 instantly. And if you don't respond, it's like, hey, where were you? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so people just are not very patient, like when it comes to this stuff. So I feel like the distraction got a lot more when it was like, you know, people are forced to take care of business quick now because if you don't, someone else will. So I think that uh, somewhere along the lines, their world's lost a little bit of patience when it comes to giving someone some space to respond or understand what's going on and come back with a response, whatever. So, and I think that, you know, it's this instant gratification thing, you know, and we're all guilty of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, like, just how can it really continue on this track because we're already, like, so demanding. I yeah, I don't know how. I mean, it's the technology is what's causing it, I think, you know. And, look, you can't fault technology. I mean, technology happens. It's really a great thing. But at the same time, I mean, it's happening so fast now that, like, everything's instant. You know, we're like living in life like real time. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Right. Um, well, just a couple more questions, Jeremy. Um, what What would you say to a young person who's, this is kind of a, a switch of gears, but um, someone who's chasing a dream but feels like they can't because they need to make money doing something that, you know, society's sort of pressuring them into. Like... Like, they want to do something cool, like become a supercross racer or whatever. Like yeah, whatever their classic, passion is, yeah. Right. What would you say to, to those people to try to encourage them? Well, listen, I think that, um, you know, when you're a kid, you understand that you have some talent for something, and if you have the, enough passion for it, I think you can work. Uh, but life's tough, right? And sports are tough. It's not easy. Uh I know plenty of kids that have, when I was young, they had life pretty easy and they just didn't really, <clears throat> they just didn't really make it because they had life too much. Life was too easy for them. So in certain uh, instances, I think that um, creating, 
you know, your life atmosphere creates drive. You know, if you have a life of excess when you're young, it doesn't give you any reason to work, right? So I think that if people can find reason to work hard, they can do it. Now, the question is, can you do it when you're young enough where you don't really have any responsibility or you don't have any overhead at that point? Right, because life comes at you fast, and you get to a certain age, you're like, man, I don't know if I have time to put into this because I got to go be a man. I got to grow up and work and make a make a living for myself. Um, I think if you're young and you and you, if you can understand that, if you have some ability to go do it, and you you can chase your dreams a little bit and chase them for a while, you should, because it can work out. I think you got to put everything into it, though. If you there's no half ways. It's not Absolutely. gonna be easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not gonna be easy. Being great is not easy. So you've had a great career. What are some things that you're like do you, what are your current dreams and aspirations for the next bit? Yeah, I think you know, for me I just what I missed out on being a young athlete is just the life of business. And it and and I really enjoy it. I think uh throughout my career, um and having contracts and dealing with different manufacturers and dealing with different people and building relationships really has taught me how to a lot about business. I'm not obviously I'm not college educated. We didn't, you know, I didn't do that. But um, I, I am, you know, I was listening and learning and and paying attention throughout my career and and uh, so business for me has been really fun since retiring. Um, so yeah, I think my goals now are just to try to raise, you know, two young, respectful daughters, and get them to college and get them going. Something we, something I didn't have to do, and uh, just yeah, just keep building great relationships. I think life's built on great relationships, and that's what what I'm doing. Cool. And last one, anything you're looking or something you're looking forward to in the next six months. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think we're almost at the end of the year, right? So 24 or no, it's coming up 23, uh, 23. I'm just looking forward to having a lot of fun with my kids. Uh, we're doing, going to do some racing this year when the Kawasaki, uh, side-by-sides and, um, yeah, just some good family fun and stay away from the phones as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get you to commit to driving distraction free? Uh, yep. I'm on it. I like the new setting and I'm definitely going to do it. So wait, can you say like, I, whatever, <laughs> promise to drive distraction yeah, yeah. free? I am committed to driving distraction free. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeremy McGrath. Jeremy is, as you could tell, just a really nice guy, really easy to talk to, and uh, loves his sport and cares a lot about the safety of our roads and um, wants to make them safer for everyone else. This is the first of 21 of these interviews, so they'll be coming out weekly. So next week, we'll have a professional photographer named Adam Campbell. You may not know him, but he is a, he is one of the most talented photographers in the power sports world and a, an avid cyclist. I actually went for a ride with him just after the interview, and he showed me some beautiful roads in the hills of western Los Angeles. So tune in 
next week for that conversation with Adam Campbell. And to make sure you don't miss future episodes and video releases, subscribe to Eyes Up Ride on Instagram and follow Eyes Up Life in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Remember to please drive distraction-free, and we'll see you next week. Bye.